You're listening to The Gospel, Race, and Justice, a sermon series at Sojourn Church Midtown. Join us as we have a conversation about ethnicity, reconciliation, and the church. Good morning. It is great to be with you today, and I truly mean this, that there is no place I would rather be than with you here in this place. I love Sojourn. I love what we're doing here, and I'm glad to be here with you. Well, I want us to think about something. We've got some heavy topics we're talking about today, but I want to start with this by asking you a question. Has anybody ever stepped on a Lego with bare feet? Anybody? Some of you have children, especially you have done so, stepped on a Lego with bare feet. So you've got pain. You have excruciating pain. You have extreme and excruciating pain. And then you have stepping on a Lego with bare feet pain, right? Okay, and when you step on a Lego with bare feet, one of the things you don't do is you don't say, well, that's the foot's problem. No, it impacts your whole body. It impacts the way you move. It impacts the way you respond. It might even impact in negative ways what comes out of your mouth at that moment. When you step on that Lego, you step on it and it affects your entire body. Well, in this series, there are things that affect our whole body. There are things, there are pains that we're going to talk about. There are things we're going to be exploring and unpacking, and they impact the entirety of our body. And none of us can say, that's just over there. That's not me. That's not what I deal with. Instead, we look at and we see that the pain of one part of the body impacts the whole of the body. And here's the question. The question is not whether there's a pain there, but how will we respond in a helpful way or in a hurtful way? Just like when you step on a Lego, the question is not whether your whole body feels that it responds. It's how you respond. And in the same way as we deal with painful and heavy topics today and throughout this series, how Will we, will we respond? Well, the topic we're going to be talking about today and focusing on is this idea of privilege, of privilege. And I want us to, to dig into this and think through this. Simply, first off, what is privilege? When we talk about privilege, we're simply talking about benefits or social advantages that we receive without earning them. All of us have that at some level. There is not a single person here. If you were to ask Pastor Jamal about that, he would say there are certain areas he has privilege in his life, and privilege is not necessarily wrong. We all experience it at some level, but here's the problem. The problem with privilege is when one person's privilege prevents opportunity for others or it's used to push others down. And privilege becomes especially problematic when there are structures put in place that preserve privilege for one person or one type of people or one group of people at the expense of others. And that can happen intentionally sometimes, and sometimes it can happen unintentionally. But I want you to understand this. This isn't new. This isn't some new thing in the 20th century or the 19th and 20th century, something new and modern. The truth is, is that perversions of privilege are as ancient as human sin. And here's a pattern that we see that happens, is that people begin to assume that they deserve certain benefits beyond others. And that's this emergence of this problematic pattern. And sometimes, 
There are privileges that are rightly given or that are justly given. We think about the covenantal privilege that God gave to the nation of Israel when he chose them to be a blessing to the nations. There's sometimes when privilege is wrongly taken, but either way, there is this pattern among humanity that we convince ourselves that we've achieved in our own power what we actually have received from others. And this delusion, it blinds us to our own sin and to the needs of others. When we become convinced that we have achieved in our power that we've actually received from others, and it blinds us. But thanks be to God, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us a better word and a better way. You see, God gives us by his gospel, by his spirit, in his word, all that we need for life and godliness. He gives us all that we need for these things, but God doesn't give us precise or easy answers. There's no verse you go to that says, here's what I do in this particular circumstance, but God does give us this. He gives us principles and patterns that prepare us to deal with these issues. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And what we're going to be looking at is Paul's correspondence to the Corinthian church. And I want us to think for a moment about the church in Corinth. I want us to think about the Corinthians because we can't understand what's happening in this church, in this letter, apart from understanding their cultural context. So Corinth was the capital of the region of Achaia. Achaia is what we call today Greece, that region, Achaia. It was the capital of this area. And it was a Roman city where people were constantly clawing for, they were known for clawing for social dominance. And it was marked by some people who were extremely wealthy and other people who were not. And what had made it that way was a road that passed by the city of Corinth. We can look on this map and see where today there's a canal right there, the Corinth Canal there. At that time, wasn't a canal right there. This is a modern image but rather was a road that went from one side to the other. You think, well, how did this road bring wealth and all of these things like that? Well, here's how. Ships would dock on one side of that. Then they would, on carts and wagons, take their goods across there and pass by or through the city of Corinth. And that saved the ships from sailing all the way around Achaia to the other side. It would save them that. So the ships would do that. They would dock on one side, they would move their goods across to a ship on the other side, and it became very common. But here's what happened as a result of that. Some people in Corinth became extremely wealthy and others were not. And it became a city though, even where those that were wealthy and those that were seemed honored, their wealth was fragile because it depended on that traffic back and forth. It depended on that. So people were always flaunting they were always trying to show, here's what I have. Here's what I possess. They were flaunting it to try to show their own privilege to others. They flaunted and fought for dominance in the social order. And this pattern had begun to affect and infect the church in Corinth. We have a biblical scholar named Ben Witherington, and he sums it up in this way. He said, the Romans divided society into two groups. The honestiores, who were the privileged, and the humiliores, who were those who didn't qualify to be part of the elite. And the church in Corinth was copying the practice of their culture, of dividing people, of organizing people, those who were privileged and those who were not. 
And the result of this was ethnic tension in the church. We see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, that speaks of an apparent tension between Jews and Greeks in the church. It produced social tension in the church. We see that in chapter 11 and verse 21, where it speaks of what's going on at the Lord's Supper, which is when they would gather for the Lord's Supper, those who were wealthier, they would gather at their own table and they would bring their own food and have a great feast, while those who didn't were over here with nothing but the bread and the wine. And there was a division in the church because of that. That's what they were doing. And Paul says, this is what you're doing. You're actually splitting the church by that as you actually, some of you are becoming drunk and and just full of food while others go away hungry. But not only was it ethnic and social tension, it was spiritual tension. Because the same group, the Onestiores, who were saying, we're, we're just superior to the rest of you, that same group was saying the spiritual gifts we have are more important than the spiritual gifts that the rest of you have. And so all of this is coming together, and those with privilege were convinced that they deserved the status they had. They had achieved it, and they were ignoring the needs of everyone else. Now, Paul, he sums up the situation in chapter 11 and verse 22. And here's what he says there. He says to these who were were wealthy, these who were were separating themselves and, and declaring themselves to be superior and more important, he said, you despise God's church and you humiliate, you degrade those who have less than you. We see here something really important that whenever privilege is used wrongly, it becomes a tool that despises, devalues, and degrades others. But the gospel of Jesus gives us a better way. And there are two truths that Paul provides here to equip us to think well, to think rightly, to think in a gospel-shaped way about privilege and power. And here's the first truth that Paul gives. It's that you didn't achieve all that you've received. You didn't achieve all that you've received. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. He says to them, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? See, the Corinthians were believing a lie. They were believing that whatever I possess, I possess because I earned it in my power. That's what they were seeing. It's mine. It belongs to me. And that is the lie that sustains every misuse of privilege. We deserve it. I deserve what I have. It's the same pattern I described a little bit earlier, this pattern of thinking I've achieved that which I've received, and therefore it is mine to be kept and mine to be used. And Paul says to them in chapter four and verse seven, who sees anything different in you? Who sees anything different in you? Now, their response to that probably was at first at least, uh, actually we do, because we have this, we have achieved this, this is ours. We see something different in us. But Paul's point is that all of you are created in the image of the same God. All of you who are believers are saved by coming to the same cross, to the same Jesus, by means of the same gospel. You are no different from those that you devalue and despise. And then he goes on to say, what do you have? 
that you didn't receive. Everything you have, you have because you've received it. Not because you're better, not because you achieved more, but because you have received it. It wasn't just your effort, you've received it. Now, this is true not just for salvation and spiritual gifts, though it's certainly true in those. Remember, Paul is dealing not just with spiritual issues here, but there's also social division and economic division and ethnic division in the church. And he's letting them know anything you possess that's advantageous to you, you have somehow received it. And if you received it, why are you boasting as if you achieved it? And when you recognize this, it sets you free to say, it wasn't me that achieved this. It was given, it was received. And I want us to see this because no matter where you are in life, the things you have achieved are yours because of a million tiny touches that got you there. We should not live within this arrogance I think everything I possess is something that I've earned in my own power, by my own effort. You are where you are because of all sorts of help and assistance that got you there. I just look at my own life. I grew up in a family in which nobody had ever graduated from college. And I decided I want to go to college. I want to do this. And when I got there, I had no clue what I was doing. I had no clue how to go to college. I just knew that I really wanted to go to college. And I was a fountain of stupid questions. That somehow there were people who answered a lot of stupid questions that I had. I remember the first time it occurred to me that being a professor would be actually kind of cool. But I didn't know. Well, you got paid to do this. I didn't know if this was a job or something like that. So I walked up to a New Testament professor and I just said, do you get paid to do this? I didn't know any better. And he took the time to to explain to me about a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a doctoral degree, how you do that. I didn't know any of those things. I didn't know about that stuff. I had a teacher who told me, you can write really well. You should pursue this. You should do more of this. I had a brother-in-law who made sure that I went to an accredited institution who told me the importance of that. All of these things and a million things I don't even know happened probably. If any of those had been one millimeter different, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And your life is no different from that. What you have achieved is not because of your wisdom and your greatness. It is rather because of the things you have received. You've received. And when we can admit it wasn't me, that sets us free. It also, by the way, makes you less of a jerk. But that's just a bonus. It sets you free. It sets you free when you say, I didn't earn it all in my own power. And one of the most significant challenges to us thinking rightly and recognizing privilege is that we don't want to admit that we may have achieved things because of advantages we've had or benefits we didn't earn. We don't admit that. We don't want to admit that there could be anything to do with the family we're born in or the people who helped us. We want to believe the lie that I made me who I am. And that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. And that's exactly why Paul says to them, who sees anything different in you? You're no different. What you got, you have received it. So the first truth 
I want us to see that what you have, you have received. But here's the second truth that Paul gives us in these texts, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Whatever you're given, you're given for the good of others. Whatever you're given, all the gifts, whatever you're given, you are given for the good of others. See, those who were privileged at Corinth were claiming they had the greatest spiritual gifts of everybody. They had the resources that everybody didn't have. They were dominating the church gatherings. They were declaring themselves to be more important than everyone else. And Paul unleashes on them this imagery that we read earlier of a body. Now, I want you to get this. This is really important for understanding this text. The so-called elite in the church, when they heard this metaphor, they recognized something that they had heard before, that they knew about. You see, this is called a homonoia speech, this use of the body as a metaphor. That means like-mindedness in Greek. And the homonoia speeches in Greco-Roman culture, I can point to you in those in Livy and Cicero and Xenophon and all sorts of other authors, you find them in those. And these uses of the body as a metaphor were used for one primary purpose. To say, in essence, our society is kind of like a body where some parts need to submit to the other parts. And those who are inferior, they need to submit to those who are seen as superior. And if not, the whole body will suffer. It was a rhetorical device with the goal of getting those who were inferior to submit to those who were seen as superior. It was very common in their world. So when these people who were in, in charge, these people who were in power, when they started to hear this body metaphor, they were thinking, oh yeah, I know where Paul's going. He's going to help our case. He's going to let us know about how and let the church as a whole know how they need to recognize our greatness and submit to what we're desiring. But Paul does something completely different with this imagery that overthrows any notion of privilege that exalts any group in the church above another. And he sets it up in chapter 12 and verse 13, where he says there, in one spirit, we were baptized in one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free. We were made to drink of one spirit. He's saying, all of you have come to this in the same way and you are all one. And then he launches into this metaphor. And it's a metaphor of equality. And he says, the foot is no less a part of the body than the hand. The ear is no less than the eye. All of you are needed. There are no appendixes in the body of Christ. No no part that you can just cut off and it doesn't really affect anything. There are no appendixes in the body of Christ. You're all necessary. You're all needed. There is an equality here among all the parts of the body. And then Paul moves on in verse 22 and digs even deeper into this metaphor. He says in verse 22, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable parts are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable parts don't even need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the lesser parts. Now, I'm just going to be honest here. This is one of those times when I look at Paul, and I'm Paul, I know you're inspired by the Holy Spirit and all that, but that got really awkward because he's still launches into talking about covered and uncovered parts of the body. This is a little odd. This is a little awkward that Paul talks about this, but here's the point he's making. 
The parts of your body that you keep covered are no less important than the parts you keep uncovered. In fact, the fact that you cover certain parts reveals that those parts are worthy of extra honor. That's his point. He's trying to say that, that all of the body matters. Now, I do want to pause for a moment on this because I can see it in some of your faces already. That the point of this parable, this analogy, is not for you to try to figure out which body part each person is, especially the, the covered parts. You're not supposed to do that. I know I can see it already. Some of you are going, there's one guy in community group and he is totally that part in the body of Christ. I mean, he is a total that part. I know about this. That's not the point of this text. So you stop being a total that part of the body of Christ by trying to figure out who is that part in the body of Christ, okay? That's not the point. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of the point. The, the point is that, that all the parts matter. You see, that's what those who were thought they were more important were saying, we're this part in the body of Christ. And Paul's point is, there is no part that is more valuable than the others. God has placed all of us so that we need one another and we are all connected. That's what's beautiful in this. Paul took a rhetorical device that the people in his, in, in Corinth, they knew this rhetorical device, and he turns it upside down to reveal God's truth about God's people. And the truth is that because you're placed together by God's power and by God's plan, whatever power, whatever gifts, whatever privilege you may have, they're to be deployed for the good of the whole body. That's what he gets at in verse 25 that there may be no dissension, no separation within the body, but the parts may have the same care for one another. If one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. That's what he's trying to get at. If one suffers, we all suffer. If there's one part of the church that's hurting, none of us can say, that's their issue. But all that we have is given for the good of one another so that we have the same regard for one another. And why is this? Because we're, we're one body. We're one body. The same reason it affects your whole body when you step on the Lego. That's why we are one body. And Paul will write later in his life into the Ephesians, dealing with some similar issues that showed up in a different way in the church in Ephesus. And he will say to them in Ephesians chapter two, Christ has reconciled Jews and Gentiles as one body by means of his death on the cross and Christ himself put hostility to death. Regardless of our differences, we are one body and we suffer as one. That's why this series isn't a black, white, or brown issue. This is an us issue. It's an us issue. It's all of us. We're connected. We're in this together. So what do we do with these truths from God's word? There are four truths I want to give you to apply this in your life. Here's the first one. Recognize the reality of privilege. Recognize it. Own it. There is this lie we tell ourselves that everything I have, I have because I achieved it in my power and I deserve it. And it's a lie. And because of that, we struggle to admit the realities of social privilege, economic privilege, ethnic privilege, all of those. This lie, this very American lie of I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. 
by which you admit you had boots with straps. Not everybody ends up with boots with straps. We are not in this where we earn everything by our own power. And Paul tells us, what do you have that you didn't receive? And we live in a world in which in particular, There are many different expressions of this. But in this series, we're focusing on some specific things in our culture. And we live in a world in which there is no escape from the reality that there is ethnic and racial privilege in our world. There's no escape from that. Now, let's be clear on this. This privilege, this reality of this privilege, is not one that was received through divine gift or divine blessing. But rather, this is one that was taken by denying opportunity to people on the basis of where they came from and the color of their skin. And we live within this framework, all of us do. We live within it. We push against it, but we live within it. And the reason we push against it is not because of anything that the world is telling us, but because of what God tells us. In Genesis chapter 1, it says we are all created in the image of God. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10, it says we are to work for the good of all people in the church. We push back against it, not because of the world telling us, because of God's word telling us. I want to build on some things I said last week and talk about just the way it impacts our world. Because until we're honest about this, We cannot really deal with this. Look at it in areas as diverse as as economics, for example. African Americans in American history were not able to go and homestead in the 19th century when all the settlement happened, the westward expansion, in the same ways that others were. African Americans were cut out of economic development due to Jim Crow and all of the things associated with that after the Civil War. They were cut out of the housing boom after World War II. When all sorts of people received all sorts of loans, there was a limit and even a denial for those who were African-American. The result of this in our society functionally is if you look at the average, the average economic resources of an, Amer- of an African-American family are one-twentieth that of a white family on average. At the, at the current rate of economic growth, It would take over 200 years just to get close to equality economically. That's surreal. I know there's exceptions to all of these. I'm saying averages. Exceptions, yes. But these are the averages. These are the systems that shape our society. It doesn't just shape economics. It shapes justice. We can look around us and see so many examples in the prison system, And in things even over the past couple of weeks where justice is not equitably applied. But it's also in more intangible ways. The ways that, that when you go to college, when you go to a class, if you're majority culture, white, you can be guaranteed that the books on your book list will tell your story. But I went all the way from a bachelor's degree to a master's degree to a doctor of education and then to a PhD, and I was never required to read one book, not even one, by an African-American author. That's just reality. I did read books like that, but I wasn't required to. In all of that, I wasn't required to. If you're part of majority white culture, you live with an invisible backpack full of resources 
that you probably don't even know are there. And you live with it all the time. And if it's true what Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? You know what we can do? We can admit that. We can own that. We don't have to fight against saying there are things that, that, that I live with, that I live within that are different and, and I, I have. We can admit that. Even privilege that originated unjustly at its beginning. We don't have to pretend we earned everything. None of us do. We can be free to say there are benefits, there are privileges I didn't earn. We can own that. And when we do that, we're ready for the second point that I want us to see. What do we do here? We deploy privilege for the sake of others. You see, in our world, outside of the church, outside of the gospel, we have about two different answers to how we deal with privilege. Some people, on the one hand, want to deny it, that it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Other people, on the other hand want to destroy it. Say, let's, it's a bad thing in and of itself. We need to wipe it out. We need to destroy it. But the, the word of God doesn't call us to either of those. It doesn't say to deny it, nor does it say to destroy it. Instead, it's deploy it. Deploy privilege for the sake of others. See, Paul uses this body language to say all that you have, use it for the sake of others. But it's not just in Paul we see that. We can go back before Paul to the Old Testament, to Psalm 82 to give you an example of this. In Psalm 82, here are the words that we read in Psalm 82. It says, how long will you hand down unjust decisions? It's speaking to those in power by favoring the wicked. Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Do you see what you're supposed to do with power? You deploy it for the sake of others. God speaks to those in power and says, give justice. Uphold the rights. Privilege isn't to be denied or destroyed. It's to be deployed. This is not something brand new that Christians are just starting to figure out. This is something that we have a history of. I can go back to the 19th century to Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was an abolitionist in, in England and was a pastor of the, one of the largest churches in the world at that time. And here's what Spurgeon had to say in his sermon entitled, The First Words of Jesus from the Cross. He says, any church that does not exist to take the side of the poor, to denounce injustice, to hold up righteousness, is a church that has no right to exist. Has no right even to exist, he says. You see, since you didn't earn all that you have, it gives you a chance to give it away. To give it away. And so you're asking some of you, what do I do? How do I deploy it? Let me give you three examples of ways you can deploy Privilege. Let's think about those, three of them. One of them is just notice. Notice unjust privilege. Notice inequitable things in our society. Where are the structures that, that exclude some people? Notice it. Admit it. That's where some of you just need to start of being able to notice these things. But the second one, speak instead of being silent. You're in a community group, or you're at work, especially if it's with somebody who claims to be a Christian, and they make a racist comment. Don't smirk and chuckle, or just be silent. Say so. Say so. 
Because what they are doing is not merely a joke or something that is some sort of a, something that is, is of no consequence. What they are doing is a vile rebellion against God's creation of every human being in his image. Speak up. Say so. But it goes beyond that. You're in a community group and somebody says something that is degrading to some of the women in your community group or that silences them and prevents them from being taken seriously. Don't be silent. Don't be silent. Say so. Say that this isn't right. And we need to listen and make space for their voice. That's what we have to do. Speak instead of being silent. And then use any privilege or opportunity you have to make opportunities for others. How will you open doors for other people that may not have access to some of the same opportunities you do? If we are not looking for ways to to do that, we're doing it wrong. Look for ways to do that. How will I open doors to opportunities for others who may not have those opportunities? How can I equalize these opportunities to give others a chance and a voice? The third truth I want us to get from this in application is to recognize you are more than your privileges or your challenges. See, there's a worldly understanding of privilege that it's that we are basically nothing more than our privileges and our challenges. That's not God's way. You are not merely your challenges or your privileges. You are created, imprinted with the very image of God. And if you have trusted Christ, God looks at you and he sees all the goodness of Jesus in you and he delights in you. He delights in you. And if we buy into the lie that all we are is the sum total of our privileges and our challenges, when we look at each other, when we look at each other, all we see is who is less or more advantaged than others. That's all we see. It's toxic. It's harmful. And it's not God's way. Because all it produces is envy and guilt is all it produces. And that's not the gospel. The gospel does not separate people into categories of oppressor and oppressed in which there's no way out of the circle. That's not the way of the gospel. But rather what the gospel says to us is we are one body and we suffer and we struggle together. And so we can recognize the reality of privilege. We can push against certain types of privilege. And now at the same time, we look around at each other and we see one another as the body of Christ with awe and beauty and joy and delight who are created by God and redeemed by the blood of Jesus who will one day we will shine together like the sun. And that lets us be honest with one another. We're not in competition. It lets us be more honest with one another. And the last, the last thing I want to point out and call us to is to rest in the goodness of a God who is redeeming both our privilege and our pain. Rest in the goodness of a God who is redeeming both privilege and pain. This week, I, I'll admit, I just spent most of this week just broken over the way things are. And then they just kept getting worse. <laughs> Every day, it kept getting worse. And it's in the middle of the year 2020, less 
past the middle of the year 2020, a year that if we had ordered this from the manufacturer, we would have sent it back as defective. This whole year is just defective. And we're in the midst of this. And, and in preparing this, in wrestling with this, some sermons flow out of you. Some you feel like they're cut out of you. That they're cut out of you. It's like, what do we even do? Things are so messed up. What do we even do? And I had to kind of pull in and center, say, you know what? I'm not responsible for the whole world. I should pray for the whole world, be concerned for the whole world, but I'm not responsible for the whole world. What I'm responsible for is where God has placed me here at Sojourn, in this city, in this place, and to seek what is right and just here. That's what I can do. Not by my power, but by God's power. That's what we can do. We can seek it here where we are. We can notice, we can listen, speak, and act, and make opportunities here in this place. And we can strive for that here. And some of you, you're doing that. Just, you're here. You're here in this place. You sat through this series of hearing some really hard truths. And for some of you, this is uncomfortable. Different ones of you in different ways, but you're here and you're doing this. Praise God for you. Praise God for you. I'm thankful for you. But here's what I have to consider in this is that if we serve a God who could work through a cross to bring redemption for his people, he can work through our privilege and our pain to redeem us now and redeem what's going on somehow. I don't know how. I really don't. I don't even have a guess. I'll admit that. I don't. But I trust in a God who can do this. He can do it. He can bring beauty out of brokenness. Last week or so, I've been reading about an event in 1739. It's called the Stono Uprising, 1739. And in this uprising, there were a group of, of slaves near the Stono River in South Carolina. And they, they, they escaped, and they were headed south to try to get freedom in Spanish Florida in 1739. This uprising was violently put down, and there were a lot of laws passed in the aftermath of it. One of the laws that was passed in the aftermath of it was that slaves could no longer use drums. Drums were outlawed. They couldn't because they'd use this to communicate, and it was a, it was a holding on to of, of culture, and it was taken away this, using drums. So what they did was to develop ways to preserve rhythms by means of their bodies. And one of the primary ways became known as the shuffle, using the feet to shuffle in a particular rhythm. It's what we get the rhythm today that is the foundation of blues and of jazz and of so many other, that type of a rhythm. And so what was unjust, what was awful and broken, saying, you can't do this, they turned it into something full of joy. They turned a shuffle into a song. That's beautiful. That God can do this with us too. Just as they took this, this unjust event and they turned a shuffle into a song, God can turn beauty into brokenness and joy. We serve a God 
He can turn a shuffle into a song. He can turn a cross into a victory. He can turn a grave into a groove. And that is our only hope. That's what he can do. I don't know how he does this in every circumstance. But what we do is we trust that that is our hope. That is our hope. That there will come a day when all the weapons that have taken lives be pounded into shovels to dig a grave for death itself. And God, by Jesus Christ, will put death itself into the grave and death itself will die. And we look forward to that. That is the truth we cling to. But in the meantime, we are called to be faithful and we are called to be there for one another and to use what God has given us for the sake of one another. And anything less, anything less, is a denial of what God himself did in Christ. When Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, became poor for our sakes. All privilege that he had, he released it to give it to you. And what does that call you to do? It calls every one of us to give, to be generous to one another in all that we do, to admit what we have and to give and to share and to love. That is what it calls us to. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.